looking this afternoon and saw that it's, we've been in this study for, for over six months. Uh, we've talked about angels and we've talked about demons and we, we have looked at, at how we are to function in the battle, how we are to, to work in the fight. In the last three weeks, we looked, have looked at John 15 where Jesus says those, those words that seemingly should mean everything that says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And we've talked about how prayer is how we as believers fight. That we don't fight against our uh, enemy with weapons made by man, but we fight through weapons that are not carnal. And we walked through the armor of the Lord, and then we talked about the only offensive weapon that we were given, and that is prayer. And so the, one of the pivotal verses in the Bible is this text in John 15 that we looked at. And we, we walked through how this text is all about bearing fruit. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever it will and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That the idea of the reason why when we come to God and pray that God is quick to answer our prayers is because the Father is glorified as we bear fruit. And we took some time and looked at whether or not that question of fruit is whether or not it's us leading people to Christ and bearing fruit in that regard or whether this text is referring to something like the fruit of the Spirit. And we, I, I hope that I was able to show from Scripture that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. That it's both. That as we as believers walk in the way that God has, has commanded us to walk, as we bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit of love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, kindness self-control, that as we show those things in our life and we allow the Holy Spirit to change how we are, that that uh, will cause other people to want to take part in what we're participating in. They'll want that. Just one of those you could reach in and pick out is peace. Peace is so lacking in our culture. And when I say peace, I'm not referring to the absence of war. I'm referring to a... The ability to not get caught up in everything that's going on around us, but an inner peace that says that no matter what's happening in my life, that God is still God. Whether I have, so that if I find out that I have cancer, I don't look to God that if you heal me, then you prove that you're God. I realize that you're God whether I live or die, and that that's enough. That God is the gospel. That the good news is that we can have a relationship with God. And whether I live, I live for Christ and I live on this earth to serve Him. But if I die, dying is gain. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's why we as believers do not mourn as those who have no hope. Why we, a, a, a Christian funeral in all of the world is weird I've been to funerals when, as people tore hair out of their head and literally ripped their clothes because they were so distraught because their religion teaches them or what they believe is that they'll never see that person again, that they're separated from that person from now on and they've lost them. We don't mourn as those who have no hope. I can stand at the graveside of a believer and say, I will see them again. 
Because the Bible teaches that they are not in that shell and that what is buried uh, in the flesh is raised in the spirit. What is buried in corruption is raised in incorruption. And that one day we all will experience that truth that death is swallowed up in victory. And so God is the gospel. And so the idea in this text of ask whatever you will and it will be done for you is not implying by any stretch of the imagination that I can just start praying that God would give me a new truck and a pony and I'm going to get that. Or that I start praying that God's going to give me a, a, a new AR-15 and that that's going to just drop out of the sky. Or whatever you want to have. Whatever it is that you long for that you can just sit down and go, I, I claim my health in Jesus' name. Well, you know what? It may be God's will for your life that you experience And are purified through a life of sickness. The the function of a believer as we go through our life is to be transformed in the image of Christ. And we look deeply at Romans chapter 8. Where it says all things work together for the good to them who love him. To those who are called according to his purpose. And we saw that the very next verse says. For whom God foreknew he predestined to be transformed into the image of Christ. That the reason why everything's going to work out doesn't mean that it's going to necessarily even work out on this side of the Jordan. It's not always going to be a happy ending. But ultimately, when we receive the promise, we'll see how this life that we live, the life that God allowed us to walk through, every ounce of pain that we've experienced was all for a reason. That none of it is worthless for the believer. So, we looked at the fact that this verse is conditional. It doesn't say that just anybody can ask anything of God and he'll do it. It says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you. And the last time that we met, we looked at those two conditional phrases. What does that mean? The first one, if you abide in me. And we use the example of a vine and how that vine draws its sustenance from God. It's meaning, I mean, from, from the, the rootstock. And that we as believers, that God should be our everything. That if we're abiding in him and his word is abiding in us, And I really don't think that those two conditional statements are a A and then B. I think that those two things are interwoven. That the way that you learn to abide in Christ is by God's Word abiding in you. And the way that you can actually grow from reading God's Word is that you're abiding in Christ. Those two things are absolutely intermingled and inseparable. So if we're doing those things, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And we talked uh, in in the close last time about how that's in reference to being in the fight. That as we're serving Christ, as we're abiding in Him, as we're doing the things that He's called us to do, that we have an unbelievably powerful resource that we can call on the God that created everything that is. You realize that everything that exists whether it's, you know, the, everything with a noun, the chairs, the, the trees, all that kind of stuff. <coughs> but also the principalities, the powers, demons, angels, all of that. Us, every human being that's ever lived. All of that is something that God made ex anilio out of nothing. And so it's all under him. He is transcendent over it. 
And that that God has given us a promise, the God who made everything that there is, every ounce of gold on the earth, he made it. If he wanted some more, he could make some more. All the platinum that there is, he made it. Whatever thing you want to think about, all the diamonds in the world and in the universe. I was reading a few days ago that there's a planet that they think that the whole planet is made out of diamonds. God made that. So there's nothing that he that is beyond his resources. I mean, my kids sometimes come to me and ask for things, and I'm like, I just can't, I don't have the resources to provide that. And so I I can't. Our father doesn't ever have that problem. Ever. Does he go, well, that's that's too much for me. No matter what the request is. So I wanted us to look at this text in action. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to 2 Kings 18. And we're going to look. Why is my Bible open to numbers? 2 Kings 18. See, I've lost my momentum now. We just need to start all over. Okay, so John 15, 2 Kings 18, and I, I printed out the verses that we need, or you can turn in your Bible. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Didn't, didn't even seem like it's a problem. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish and saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. So he, he just folds. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house. And then the text goes into great detail about how King Hezekiah goes and stripped all the gold off the doors and off the candle stands. And he just stole gold from out Israel. And then he's, he's essentially paying off um, Sennacherib. So the problem with paying off somebody that's, that's, uh, that's essentially holding you at gunpoint is they're going to come back for some more. And so Sennacherib comes back and sends his ambassador, Rabshakeh, to them, saying, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, because at this point they were up against the walls of Jerusalem. He says, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you're now trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is the Pharaoh of king of Egypt to all who trust in him. So what is going on is, is Sennacherib has, has sent his guy to Hezekiah and said, Nope, you need to give me Jerusalem. And Hezekiah says, No. And so Sennacherib is asking, what are you trusting on? What's your faith in here? Why do you think you can stand up against me? I've rolled over every country that's ever bowed back on me. He assumes that maybe Hezekiah has done some sort of, uh, gotten a, a, an ally in the uh, Pharaoh of Egypt. And so he tells him, I got no problem fighting Pharaoh. In fact, historically, he eventually did. So he, he says, is that what you're trusting? Nope. And then he says, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now, let me, let me fill in the blanks there. What had happened was Hezekiah, um, reading the law, saw that 
having little temple places all over Israel was sinful, that they had high places that they were worshiping at. And Hezekiah had sent his troops out and cut down all the high places, and he had destroyed all the false worship going on in Israel. And so the king Sennacherib inaccurately assumes that Hezekiah is undermining the religion. And that the only reason Hezekiah would say everybody has to come to Jerusalem to worship is so that Hezekiah could consolidate political power. It was beyond Sennacherib's thought processes that Hezekiah was actually following what God had commanded him to do. So Hezekiah is incorrect in his assumption, but he still has his ambassador say this. Come now, he says, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses. And if you're able to do your part to set riders on them, how then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots or horsemen? Moreover, it is without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it. The Lord said to me, go up against the land and destroy it. So here he is saying, he's mocking. He said, what if, hey, let's do this. You're so weak, I'll give you the horses to fight me. He's mocking him. He also mocks his religion. He says, you know what? God told me to come fight you. Everybody who says, thus says the Lord, ain't telling the truth. That's just a side note. So then he, he continues to talk, and uh, the, the, um, the king said, hey, we speak Assyrian. Why don't we talk in Assyrian? Because he didn't want all the people of Jerusalem to hear what this guy was saying because he didn't want everybody to get upset in, in, the, in the country. But the, uh, Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us in this city, will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of you his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. So this, this person standing in Jerusalem is telling the people, Don't listen to Hezekiah. So he's undermining him in his faith. He's undermining him politically in the city so that everybody's afraid. Everybody's worried. Some people are going to say they're going to run out. The story goes on in 2 Kings 19. As soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Now this is what Hezekiah did. The king of Assyria sent him a letter that says, I'm coming to get you. Hezekiah gets this letter, and he rips his clothes. He's scared to death. Nothing can help him at this point. If you look at the situation from any vantage point, Hezekiah is without hope. His own people are afraid. All the outlying cities around him that maybe he could muster some troops have already fallen. Here, Sennacherib actually lists off in the letter all the kings that Sennacherib has just rolled over. And he actually asks, where are their gods? Their gods aren't anywhere. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm the king. He step parks troops outside of the walls of Jerusalem so that as far as you could see, there were troops. What is Hezekiah to do? He has no hope 
What he does is he takes that letter that the king of Assyria wrote him and goes into the temple and lays that letter before the Lord. And he says, God, I can't do anything. I need you to do something. That is the best place for believers to be. When, we, when people who trust in the arm of the Lord finally get smart enough to realize our plans aren't going to work. Our things that we want to do here, there, and everywhere are all going to fail. God, we just need you to do something. That's when God moves in a mighty, mighty way. And so God sent um, Isaiah to, to tell um, Hezekiah this. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not, oh no, that's the letter. I'm sorry. That says, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising you that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria. So Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the nations of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations, and their lands have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from your hand. That all the kingdoms of the world may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And so the reason that Hezekiah pleads for God to move is so that all the nations will know that you are God. When Jesus gave us the Great Commission, what he said was, is all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. We often forget that the motivation for the Great Commission is the praise and worship of God. We tell other people about Jesus because he deserves the praise of whomever. When we were leaving to go to Turkey, I had people that called me and said, Hey, man, those, those, those Turks, they're bad people. I'm like, yeah, that's why they need Jesus. I had someone call me last week and say, Hey, I've been reading about the, the, um, the, the mob in the country that Emily's going to. And that, the, according to this article, they said, The only people that the Russian mob fears are the, the people that are right there where she's going to be. Dude, you, gotta be, you can't send your daughter there. That doesn't make any sense. If there are people who are living like that, then they desperately need a Savior. Emily's not going to change diapers and put passies in babies' mouths, even though that's what she's going to do. She's going to carry the love of Jesus. And the strength of the arm of man is powerless against that kind of a God. There is nothing that can overcome it. And so Hezekiah knows that. And his prayer isn't so that I can be a great king, God, do this. His prayer isn't so that all the world will know how mighty our armies are. 
It's so that all the world will know that you are God and you reign. And so you had on the one hand Sennacherib mocking God saying, where's your God? And you have Hezekiah fully and totally dependent on Yahweh. You don't even really have to read the rest of the story to to, to know what's going to happen. And we know what's going to happen. Sennacherib defies the Lord. I'm trying to, I see I'm having to. God told Hezekiah, therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, he shall return, and he shall not come into this city. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. God's motivation is himself being glorified. And then in verse 35 of chapter 19 we read, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold... All these were all dead bodies. And then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherzazar, his son, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. So God just took care of it. Israel didn't. In this particular case, now so oftentimes God would use just a few people to, to fulfill his will. But in this case, God didn't need anybody's help. 185,000 were struck down by what? We don't know. Just said an angel went out and struck them down. So that when everybody got up in the morning, there was nothing but a whole bunch of dead bodies. 185,000 people is a bunch of people. God doesn't need our help. God often allows us to help him. But in that scenario, it's us who get the privilege to come along beside what God is doing. God doesn't need us. I think one of the major weaknesses of the theology that's preached in churches today is this idea that it's all about you. And that, you know, God needs you. We, we, we say, behold, I stand at the door. We read the verse in Revelation, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And we present Jesus like he's some pathetic beggar outside of the door wanting you to open. The reality is, is that particular verse is referring to Jesus standing outside of his own church. And the reality is if that church didn't open the door for him, it was going to cease being a church. He said, I'm going to come in. He, if you don't open the door, I'm coming in anyway and I'm going to take my candlestick. It's not a pathetic beggar outside of the door really longing for you to to do something. It's more of a situation where God is God and he's going to do what he's going to do and we have the privilege to join in with him and do that, to do that. God doesn't need us and it's in realizing that we get to participate in what he's doing that we're free to actually do things because it's not about you or me. And so I can love. I can care for other people. If somebody else does a better job at me, then let them do it. It's not about me. It's about him. And so here we see the prayer of a righteous man has a powerful effect. 
has a powerful effect. And so as we read the news or we um, read the paper and we think nothing can be done. Well, you're right. There's nothing we can do. We can obey God. There's one thing that we can do. I, I, I have said before that I can't fix Washington, but I can fix that one person that I speak into their life. I can speak the love of Jesus into that person's life today. And the other thing that I can do that we do very little of is I can fall on my knees and, and call out for God to save our country. Because God can do some amazing stuff. And so here we see an example of God answering prayer, doing what was impossible for man. But what is impossible with man, Jesus said, is possible with God. Father God, Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that we would have the wisdom and intelligence to obey and call out for you. Lord, we thank you that the Old Testament is just chock full of stories of people who had no hope, who called out on you, and you answered. So, Lord, I pray. I do pray for our country. Lord, it seems like we've lost our mind. Lord, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit and, and pour it out on this place and convict us. God, convict me. God, help us to return to you. Lord, we love you, and we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.